Section 10 of History of Modern Philosophy by Alfred William Benn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4. The German Idealists. Part 1. Fichte, Schelling, Hegel, Schopenhauer, Herbart. The critical philosophy won its first success in Germany less as a new epistemology than as what in fact its author meant it to be a rehabilitation of religious belief. The limits of reason had been drawn so closely only to make room for faith. But the current of rationalism was running too strongly to be so summarily stopped, and so with Kant's ablest successors, faith is altogether abandoned, while the claims of reason are pushed relentlessly through. Among these more logical thinkers, the first is J. G. Fichte, 1762-1814. In him, for the third time in modern history, for the first and last time in Germany, the hero as philosopher finds a worthy representative. Born in Silesia, like Kant of humble parentage, and bred in circumstances of more oppressive poverty, he also received a severely religious and moral training as a preparation for the pastoral office. The bounty of an aristocratic patron gave him an excellent public school education, but as a university student, first at Jena and then at Leipzig, he had to earn a scanty living by private tuition, finally abandoning his destined career to accept a post in a Swiss family at Zurich. There was the result of an attachment in which the love was nearly all on the lady's side, he became engaged to a niece of the poet Klopstock, and after a long delay, caused by money difficulties, was enabled to marry her. In the meantime, he had become a convert to Kant's philosophy, winning the admiration of the old master himself by a critique of all revelation written in four weeks. Published anonymously by an oversight, it was generally attributed to Kant himself, and on the real authorship becoming known, won for Fichte an extraordinary professorate of philosophy at Jena, where his success as a lecturer and writer gave him for a time the leadership of German speculation, 1794-1799. An untoward incident brought this stage of his career to an end. Writing in a philosophical review, he defined God as the moral order of the universe. Dr. Temple long afterwards used much the same phrase when Bishop at Exeter, finding it presumably compatible with official theism. But such was not the impression created in Saxony. A cry of atheism arose, much to the disgust of Fichte, whose position would have been better described as pantheistic. But what incensed him most was the suspicion of an attempt to interfere with the liberty of academic teaching. With his usual impetuosity, he talked about resigning his chair, with a hint that others would follow his example, were the authorities at Weimar to permit such an outrage. Goethe, who was then minister, observed that no government could allow itself to be threatened, and Fichte was at once relieved of his post. 
Settling at Berlin, he became professor of philosophy in the new university founded after the French conquest of Prussia, having previously done much to revive the national spirit by his Addresses to the German Nation, 1807-1808. These were in appearance the program of a new educational utopia. But their real purpose was so evident that the speaker lived in daily expectation of being summoned before a French court-martial and shot. Unlike his countrymen Goethe, Hegel, and Schopenhauer, Fichte passionately resented the Napoleonic despotism, throwing himself heart and soul into the great uprising by which it was finally overthrown. Although his wish to accompany the victorious army as field preacher could not be gratified, the campaign of 1813 still claimed him as one of its victims. After nursing his heroic wife to recovery from a hospital fever caught in attendance on the sick and wounded at Berlin, he took the infection from her and died early in 1814, soon after hearing that Blücher had crossed the Rhine. G. H. Lewis, in a well-known story, has made himself and his readers merry over a German savant who undertakes to evolve the idea of a camel out of the depths of his moral consciousness. The phrase is commonly quoted as inner consciousness, but this takes away its whole point. For the original satirist, who I think was not Lewis but Heine, had in view the philosophy of Fichte. It need hardly be said that German savants are as careful observers and diligent collectors of facts as any others, and Fichte, in particular, trusted solely to experience for the knowledge of natural phenomena. But even as regards his general philosophy, the place it gives to morality has been misconceived even by his closest students. With him, goodwill really plays a less important part than with Kant, being not an end in itself, but a means toward the end. And what that end is, his teaching makes quite clear. Kant's first critics put their finger on the weak point of his system, the thing in itself. So assuming it to be discarded, Fichte set to work on new lines, the lines of pure idealism. But though an idealist, he is not any more than Barclay a solipsist. The celebrated antithesis of the ego and the non-ego dates from him and strikes the keynote of his whole system. It might be thought, as compared with the old realism, this was a distinction without a difference. But that is not so, for according to Fichte, the non-ego is subjective in its origin, and that is where he departs widely from Barclay's theological idealism. Not that I create the not-myself. I assume it as the condition of my self-consciousness a remarkable feat of logic, but after all not more wonderful than that space and time should result from the activity of the outer and inner senses. This figment of my imagination is anyhow solid enough to beget a new feeling of resistance and recoil, throwing the self back on itself, and bringing with it the interpretation of that external impact by the category of causation, of its own activity as substance, and of the whole deal between the ego and the non-ego as interaction or reciprocity. 
In this way, the first triad of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis is obtained, and from this, by a vast expenditure of ingenuity, the whole array of Kant's forms, categories, and faculties is evolved as a coherent system of scientific thought in obedience to a single principle, the self-realization of the ego, alternatively admitting and transcending a limit to its activity. It will be easily understood that this self-realizing ego is neither fictus nor anyone else's self, but a universal principle, fundamentally the same in all. One is reminded of Descartes' self-thinking thought by which the reality of the universe was guaranteed. But between the two there is this vast difference, that the Frenchman's ego resembles a box containing a variety of independent ideas to be separately handled and examined. The German's is a box enclosing a coiled-up spring, by the expansion of which all the wheels of the philosophical machine are made to go round. From the action of the not-self on the self results the whole of nature as we conceive it. From the reaction of the self on the not-self, the whole mentality and morality of man, morality being understood to include the domestic, social, political, educational, and industrial organization of life. The final cause, the impelling ideal of existence, is the self-realization of the ego, the entire absorption into its personal energy of the non-ego, of nature, to be effected by perfect knowledge of how the physical universe is constituted, issuing in perfect subjugation of its forces to the human will. But such a realization of the absolute ego would mean its annihilation, for, as we have seen, the antithesis between objective and subjective is the very condition of consciousness, that without which it could neither begin or continue to exist. Therefore, the process must go on forever, and this necessity guarantees the eternal duration of the human race, not as Kant had dreamed, of the individual soul, since for Fichte the categorical imperative demands a consummation widely different from that combination of virtue with happiness which had satisfied his master. And the agency by which it is being effected through infinite time is not a personal god, but that moral order of the world which Fichte regarded as the only true object of religious feeling. As for human immortality, he seems to have first accepted, but afterwards rejected it, in favor of a mystical union with the divine. It has been said that morality was not with Fichte what it had been with Kant, the highest good. Nevertheless, as a means toward the final synthesis, morality interested him intensely, and his best work has been done in ethics. As a condition of self-realization, the primal ego becomes personified in a multitude of free individualities. Just as in Stoicism, each individual is conceived as having a special office to perform in the world process, and the state exists, ideally speaking, in order to guarantee the necessary independence of all its citizens. For this purpose, 
everyone must have the right to work and the right to a living wage. Thus Fichte appears as the first theorist of state socialism in the history of German thought. Probably the example of the Greek Stoics, with their communistic utopias, acting on a kindred spirit, rather than any prophetic vision of the coming century, is to be credited for this remarkable anticipation. Schelling German philosophy is prolific of self-contradictions, and so far the most flagrant example has been offered by Fichte's theory of knowledge, starting as it does with the idea of an impersonal ego, developing through a process in which this selfless self demands its own negation at every step, and determined by the prospect of a catastrophe that would be the annihilation of consciousness itself. In fact, there seemed no need to wait until time had run out. The self, or, as it was now called, the subject, had absorbed all reality, only to find that the material universe, reconstituted as the object of knowledge, was an indispensable condition of its existence. And meanwhile, the physical sciences, more particularly those concerned with inorganic nature, were entering on a series of triumphs unparalleled since the days of Newton. Philosophy must come to terms with these or cease to exist. The task of reconciliation was first attempted by F. W. J. Schelling, 1775 to 1854, a Schwabian, and the first South German who made a name in pure philosophy. Educated at the University of Tübingen, at an early age he covered an encyclopedic range of studies and began authorship at nineteen, gaining a professorship at Jena four years later. Wandering about from one university to another and putting forward new opinions as often as he changed his residence, the young adventurer ceased to publish after 1813 and remained silent till in 1841 he came forward at Berlin as the champion of a reactionary current, practically renouncing the naturalistic pantheism by which his early reputation had been made. But he utterly failed in the attempt, which was finally abandoned in the fifth year from its inception. Lewis, who saw Schelling in his old age, describes him as remarkably like Socrates. His admirers called him a modern Plato but he had nothing of the deep moral earnestness that characterized either. Nor indeed was morality needed for the work that he actually did. This, to use the phrase of his fellow student Hegel, consisted in raising philosophy to its absolute standpoint, in passing from the subjective moralism of the 18th century to the all-comprehensive systematization of the 19th. Schelling began as a disciple of Fichte, but he came simultaneously under the influence of Spinoza, whose fame had been incessantly spreading through the last generation in Germany, with some reinforcement from the revived name of Bruno. Their teaching served to make the latent pantheism of Fichte more explicit, while the great contemporary discoveries gave a new interest to the study of nature, which Fichte unlike Kant, had put in the background, strictly subordinating it to the moral service of man. Had he cared to evolve the idea of a camel from his moral consciousness, 
The operation would not have demanded several years, but only a few minutes' thought. As thus, the moral development of humanity needed the cooperation of such a race as the Semites. To form their character, a long residence in the Arabian deserts was needed, but for such nomads, an auxiliary animal would be needed with long legs and neck, a stomach for storing water, hump, etc., QED. Schelling also began by explaining the material world as a preparation for the spiritual. Only, he did not employ the method of teleological adaptation, but a method of rather fanciful analogy. As the evolution of self-conscious reason had proceeded by a triple movement of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, so a parallel process had to be discovered in the advance toward a consciousness supposed to be exhibited in organic and inorganic nature. The fundamental idea of natural philosophy is polarity, opposite forces combining to neutralize one another and then parting to be reunited at a higher stage of evolution. Thus attraction and repulsion represented as space and time, by their synthesis, compose matter. Magnetism and electricity produce chemical affinity. Life results from a triad of inorganic forces. In life itself, productivity and irritability give birth to sensibility. The order of the terms made little, if any, difference. When long afterwards iron was magnetized by the electric current, Schelling claimed for himself the credit of anticipating this discovery, although he had placed magnetism before electricity. The next step was to construct a philosophy of history. This, with much else, is included under the name of a system of transcendental idealism, 1800, in the most finished of Schelling's literary compositions. History, according to the view here unfolded, is the gradual self-revelation of God or the Absolute, in whom nature and spirit are united and identified, who never is, nor can be, but always is to be. Meanwhile, the supreme ideal is not that everlasting mastery of nature by man, which Fichte contemplated, but the reconciliation as achieved by art. For just as natural philosophy carried an element of consciousness into the material universe, so aestheticism recognizes a corresponding element of unconscious creation in the supreme works of artistic genius, where spirit reaches its highest and best. Here Schelling appears as the philosopher of Romanticism, a movement that characterized German thought from 1795 to 1805, and is known to ourselves by the faded and feeble image of it exhibited in a certain section of English society nearly a century later. Beginning with a more cultivated intelligence of Hellenic antiquity, this movement rapidly grew into a new appreciation of medieval culture, falsely supposed to have given more scope to individuality than modern civilization, and then into a search for ever-varying sources of excitement or distraction in the whole history, art, and literature of past or present times, religion being at last singled out as the vitalizing principle of all. Singularly enough, 
Fichte accepted the transcendental idealism as an orthodox exposition of his own philosophy. But its composition seems to have given Schelling the consciousness of his own independence. Soon afterwards, he defined the new position as a philosophy of identity or of indifference. Nature and spirit, like Spinoza's thought and extension, were all the same and all one. That is to say, in their totality or in the absolute. For considered as appearances, they might present quantitative differences determined by the varying preponderance of the objective or of the subjective side. In this way, Schelling found himself able to repeat his fanciful construction of the forces and forms of nature in successive triads under new names. The essential departure from Fichte, who repudiated the philosophy of identity with undisguised contempt, was that it practically repudiated the idea of an eternal progress in man's ever-growing mastery of nature. But in spite of all disclaimers, the master silently followed his former disciple's evolution in the direction of pantheistic monism. His later writings represent God, no longer as the moral order of the world, but like Spinoza, as the world's eternal being, of which man's knowledge is the reflected image. Finally, both philosophers accepted the Christian doctrines of the fall, the incarnation, and the trinity as mythical symbols of an eternal process by which God, after becoming alienated from himself in the material universe, returns to himself in man's consciousness of identity with the absolute. Instead of the rather abrupt method of position, negation, and reaffirmation, known as thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, we have here the more fluid process of a spiral movement, departing from and returning to itself. And this was to be the very mainspring of the system that comes next up for consideration. End of section 10